Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Scott Herms. Please, have a seat. If you're tuning in for the first time, we'd highly encourage you to hit the pause button, scroll back to episode one for a brief introduction to what the Working Better podcast is all about. If you're thinking, nope, I'm committed, I've already started my neighborhood walk, and I can't go back to my phone, here's the quick version. Working Better is a podcast about problems worth solving and the technology required to solve them. This week's topic, contact tracing applications. The question, where are they? More specifically, why do they still present such a critical tool in fighting the spread of COVID-19? Why have they been so slow to catch on, particularly in the U.S.? And what would it take to introduce something that, you know, worked? As a preface to this piece, our deepest sympathies go out to the millions of people who have been affected by COVID-19 or who have even lost loved ones. This is first and foremost a human tragedy. Our hope is simply to shed light on the role that technology can play in helping us overcome it. Okay, so first, contact tracing is one of those terms that would have meant nothing to most of us a year ago, but have become a regular part of our vocabulary, like social distance, shelter in place, and Supreme Court toilet flush. After a person tests positive for COVID-19, contact tracing is the process by which health officials try to track down who that person has had close contact with in order to warn those people and hopefully contain further spread. It's a relatively manual process, and it's nothing new. It's something that happens regularly to stop the spread of disease, but clearly the scale is something new entirely. And no surprise, with cases continuing to climb around the world, nearly 21 million cases globally, it takes a lot of resources. To help health officials accelerate the process, contact tracing mobile apps were hyped as the key technological tools in the early stages of the pandemic. In some countries, the federal government developed an app. Here in the U.S., it's been up to each state to do so. Most of them work generally like this. You have a friend over in your backyard for a socially distanced drink after work. Your phones recognize that they're close to one another. Hello. Exchange some encrypted information via Bluetooth, which is added to an anonymous log simply noting that the phones were close. Days later, you test positive for COVID-19. You self-report the positive test into the app. It then sends a notification to anyone you came in contact with who was also using that app. Someone you've been in contact with tested positive for COVID-19. Your friend gets tested and can notify other people he's had contact with. Problem solved, right? (laughs) Okay, that's our show, folks. Tune in next time. Eh, No, not exactly. There's obviously a lot to unpack on this topic, and we've learned quite a bit in putting this episode together. One of the things that became very clear very quickly is why language matters. We started this process under the topic of contact tracing apps, but in talking with folks very close to efforts to get public health officials the technology they need, it was underscored again and again that we should refer to the technology as exposure notifications not contact tracing. And it's far from a political correctness thing. It might sound subtle, but it does shift the assumption of who's benefiting, which we'll get into later in much more detail. Contact tracing often sends the wrong message. It sounds like the technology is, well, tracing you, tracking your movements. It suggests the benefit is geared towards those doing the tracking and the tracing, the public health officials. 
Exposure notifications, however, is about notifying you if you've been around someone who had COVID. Yeah, so that was something that we, especially in TCN and even now in Linux Foundation, public health, tried to attack early. Um, anytime that we were talking to either reporters or even posting on social media, just being intentional about we're not going to say contact tracing. These apps are digital exposure notification. But again, I think that the public's like previous encounters with technology that may have had privacy breaches or like fell in the category of surveillance tech or what some folks felt that meant, like the words contact tracing, tracing, tracking. One of the big ones I see also is the word surveillance. Like this is maybe an accurately used term in the context of epidemiology when they say, you know, we're trying to surveil the virus's spread. That's Ellie Daw a research scientist with TCN Coalition, a group working to bring the public exposure notification technologies that are trustworthy, effective, and privacy-preserving. TCN is now part of the Linux Foundation Public Health. More on them later. Like Ellie mentioned, early versions of apps in states like Rhode Island, Utah, North and South Dakota actually did use GPS tracking, which sparked immediate privacy concerns, and the apps were pulled back. Enter Google and Apple. In a rare collaborative effort, these two tech giants created their Exposure Notifications API using only low-energy Bluetooth, keeping all data exchanged anonymous and limited to only what's necessary. Here's how the two described the technology when it was first announced. The contact tracing app works best when more people download it, and being asked to download an app without knowing how it will handle your personal information might cause people to worry about their privacy, and they may not feel safe participating. That's why engineers at Apple and Google have been working together to make public health technology that protects individual privacy so that people never have to choose between their privacy and the health and safety of their community. The announcement came in April, four months later, with nearly six million cases in the U.S. Less than five states say they're going to use the exposure notification system created by Google and Apple. So what's not working? Exposure notification, um, which back then we were calling digital contact tracing, was an effort that really got started in March. And then Google's announcement came out in the second week of April. There was this time where the, the community around the world, and quite, quite literally around the world, was building a consensus around what this protocol might look like. And so when Google and Apple came out with their announcement, we were all very surprised. We weren't expecting them to come out with anything. And we had actually been approaching them to to help us with this problem because there are certain things that are handled uh, with Bluetooth at the OS level, at the operating system level, that we couldn't fix ourselves, that we couldn't make adjustments to. And we needed them to do it in order to have these apps work with fewer issues. And so when Google and Apple said that they were moving into the space, we were actually very happy because we had been asking them to do this. And then it turns out that what they chose for their protocol was very, very similar to what organizations like TCN Coalition and DP3T, which is a European uh, organization, very similar, were trying to do with their protocols. So there were a lot of similarities in terms of the architecture, the cryptography, such that we all felt very, very comfortable with them moving into the space. And on top of that, they've been fantastic to work with. They've been very open to feedback, very thoughtful in their approach. And so 
I think throughout all of this, we've been enjoying, you know, we've been, we've been very happy to see them in, in the space and making these moves. Um, there are just things that Apple and Google can do that nobody else can. As a consumer, it's also been a good thing because one of the things that's really important with exposure notification apps is for them to work. We need to get good adoption across the board. The more people that use these apps, the more effective they can be. The more people that comply with the instructions they get in these apps, the more effective they can be. That's Jenny Wanger. Jenny is the head of Implementers Forum at the Linux Foundation Public Health, or LFPH, an organization that builds, secures, and sustains open source software to help public health authorities combat COVID-19 and future epidemics. It's a wide-ranging effort, inclusive of organizations like Cisco, IBM, Nearform, VMware, and more. We met with Jenny to discuss this issue of widespread adoption, among the many other nuances of getting those apps to work. In that conversation, we brought up a stat from an Oxford University study we'd seen cited over and over in doing research for this piece. According to sources all over the internet, this Oxford study concluded that 60% of a country's population would need to use a contact tracing technology in order for it to be effective. As Jenny explained, it's a figure that's been taken wildly out of context, and it can actually be damaging to contact tracing efforts. This is a, a often misquoted statistic, uh, okay. and it's I actually we we wrote a blog I wrote a blog over on the LFPH blog last week about it because it's been getting so much attention. And what it really is, if you go back to that original study from Oxford, which was published. This was one of the very early studies that was published on exposure notification, and it was done using a model. And they modeled out in a specific community or in a city if exposure notification technology was going to be the only technology used in order to prevent COVID from spreading, what percentage of the population would need to download this app and comply with it in order for the spread of the disease to be stopped, right? In order for the transmission rate to drop below one. Researchers like Jenny, including the authors of that very Oxford study, have been screaming from their virtual rooftops to try and clarify that figure. Why? Because any adoption of a technology like this can help to mitigate risk. Take Ireland, for example. The Irish government, with Ireland-based firm Nearform, and using a code base hosted by the LFPH, built an app that was downloaded by 37% of the country's population the first week it was available. As Nearform Technical Director Colm Hart told the MIT Tech Review, even if you break a few transmission chains as a result of the app, for me, that's a success. Most of the early app success stories were driven by European governments, Norway, Iceland, Germany, among others. So, what's going on? What's not working? Why aren't people using these technologies? Since the beginning, the issue of privacy and trust has been at the heart of the conversation. Users want to know, how is my data being used? Is my location being tracked? If I did test positive, will that be revealed to my friends and family? How easy is this data to compromise? This damn app better not be able to see my browser history. That is on a need-to-know basis. Google and Apple's exposure notification system was built for exactly this reason. Remember that lady from the clip? Some critics have continued to claim they're still pulling data they don't need. According to Jenny in the LFPH, confusion in the media and the public is largely drawn back to very early contact tracing apps 
that actually were using GPS tracking. When the idea of exposure notification first came out, there were there was a split. Uh, there were people who were advocating for it to be GP, largely GPS-based and location-based, and then there were a number of people who were advocating for Bluetooth. Ultimately, Bluetooth won out uh, largely because of privacy concerns. It's much harder to create anonymous GPS data because even if the GPS data isn't tagged to an individual, you can use a string of GPS locations, and oftentimes, based on when somebody is where, you can then identify them from that data uh, if you can cross it with another data source. Versus the Bluetooth communication that's being used on this is extraordinarily private because it's an exchange of random IDs that change all the time. So there's no way to track somebody back to how to who they are based on the Bluetooth data that's being shared and that can be picked up from, from elsewhere. So given that Bluetooth went, went out, but when this concept was first coming out and governors and states were looking for exposure notification systems, a number of them did actually choose to go with GPS-based systems because those were ready and they were faster to produce. And so you had states like Utah, North and South Dakota that came out with their contact, their exposure notification apps that used Bluetooth or that used GPS, pardon me. And so those were the first ones to get adopted, but GPS, because of those privacy concerns, and then also because of this issue of GPS drift, it can, it's not necessarily, it's very hard to get GPS to be within six feet to tell within, that it's somewhere within six feet of the dot um, without using up a lot of additional battery life. So there were some challenges with the rollout of those apps. Uh, so that's one thing that ended up actually setting the entire effort to get exposure notification out behind because when people saw those apps and had problems with them, they started having some negative associations. And so some other states that were thinking about this technology said, well, wait a second, I'm not so sure about this. Based on the systems her team is working on, which is in turn based on Google and Apple's system, Jenny says there's not really a lot of need for concern about where the data goes because there really isn't any data being shared. That's why we are repeating these messages over and over again, why we are encouraging open source solutions so that we can have organizations like Human Rights Watch or EFF or any of these public think tanks that specialize in consumer security and privacy and understands this work. They can go in, they can look at everything, and they can say, you know what, we have checked this as far as we can, and we also think that it is private, it is safe, it is secure, and that you will not be compromised by putting, uh, by having this on your phone. And that's because you are not actually giving them any data, right? We are not actually collecting any personal information with these exposure notification apps. Every step of the way, it is up to the consumer to choose how much information they share. Some have pointed out the issue of developer and enforcer. Uh, Simply put, when the people in charge of the rules are the same people enforcing those rules, there's obviously something of a conflict of interest. For those who maintain privacy concerns, the importance of open source development is at the top of the priority list, which is what Google and Apple have done. The source code for the Exposure Notification API is available on GitHub. Privacy experts seem to agree. It's doing what it's supposed to do, and The very limited functionality of the app means data isn't collected or shared beyond a simple encrypted code via Bluetooth. So if privacy isn't really the problem, what is? One major issue, friction. In the U.S., 
identifying the right app, downloading it, understanding how it works, enabling your phone's ability to allow it to work. It's, it's too much, particularly with the extraordinary challenges people are coping with. This is another thing that, is, that has got to be prioritized and is competing with the other priorities of, of the average Main Street individual in, during this pandemic. And, and they're facing you know, uh, lack of employment or partial employment. They're figuring out how to take care of um, their own, inter, you know, immediate families. They're, they're, they're thinking about how to take care of um, other dependents or, or aging parents. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things and other stressors that are on their minds. And installing an app and dealing with that friction um, and understanding how all these things are going to, you know, spending the, the time to think about how, how this thing is going to work and how it's going to benefit them, I just cannot see it being prioritized um, among the other stressors and the other solutions that people need to come up with uh, as, they, as they work through this critical time. That's Paul Heckel. He works at Ken and Carta. Paul's the head of digital experience, meaning he runs a team of designers, analysts, and researchers focused on making digital products, meaning the kind without friction and doubt and confusion. Paul's great. And fun fact, just after that clip, Paul's Roomba launched an effort to be featured on the podcast as well, but Paul shut it down. But his perspective largely rings true. If you've ever tried to download an exposure notifications or contact tracing app from wherever you download apps, it seems so discombobulated, at least here in the U.S., that getting you to actually download the thing is likely the biggest hurdle, not necessarily convincing you it's data secure. So, to summarize thus far, contact tracing matters quite a bit. Expectations for the apps were high. Initial privacy concerns were initially high. Google and Apple tried to fix it. Adoption is still low, aside from some European countries, and cases are still rising here in the U.S., and now I have an entire section of my closet devoted exclusively to sweatpants. So how can we reframe the conversation? What else can we try? One simple area that researchers and designers like Jenny and Ellie are longing for. Simple stories that show that the tech actually works. Not a pleasant voiceover explaining how this digitally illustrated woman named Lucy can be notified if she was possibly exposed while a ukulele plays gently in the background but actual human stories. I think that we need to put a lot of intentional effort into publicizing the wins, like saying, here's an example of how this really worked. Here's Susie, who who didn't trust it at first, but then saw that it impacted her firsthand. There's a lot of coverage of, of the criticism of the technology, and that's important too. We need to know where the gaps are and kind of understand people's concerns. But I think that one of the biggest elements of getting over that hurdle is going to be, let's make sure that the people hear about the ways that it is working and let's just really celebrate those wins. Lucy, Susie, whoever it is, it seems we're missing a clear view of impact on real people. Some are suggesting that public health officials and developers should look to how companies like Facebook, Uber, and WhatsApp gained traction before they were the behemoths they are today. Targeting local, highly focused communities where they'd be of immediate use and then scaling up. Some employers are running this type of approach, including Italian bank UBI Banca, who introduced an app called UBI Safe. The employer-led approach is interesting. Paul actually brought up a study that PR firm Edelman puts out called the Trust Barometer. In 2019, of all the entities, the news media, local government, 
federal government, deep state shadow governments, enterprise businesses, NGOs, one emerged as the most trusted. My employer was the one that outscored everybody else on the trust index. Others are suggesting a straightforward, if unlikely, solution. Pay Americans $1,000 to download a contact tracing app. That's the headline from Zachary Kellenborn, a national security consultant, in an article from August on Slate.com. While the logic has an appeal, critics have been quick to raise the difference between downloading an app and actually using it properly which gets much more tricky to track and enforce, particularly for those concerned with privacy. As we talk further, Paul from the Kin and Carta team suggested a different way to think about exactly that problem. Incentivizing the behavior itself and actually foregoing the download altogether by integrating into the health apps we already have on our phones. We know that people want to look at their step counts, right? There's something gratifying about seeing that passively, this thing is watching me, observing me, tracking me. When I open a fitness app, it's like, oh, I'm going to get that hit of endorphins when I see that I covered 11,000 steps that day or whatever the number is. So there's some adjacent features within these health applications that will bring people to the app to explore in the first place. And so for contact tracing, it could be, oh, that's interesting. I have an exposure score or a COVID exposure rating that's now presented here along with my step count. On Android, the default fitness app is Google Fit. You get heart health points or something like that. And others, move minutes or activity scores, There are different ways that health and fitness and your activity levels are communicated in these applications. So you open one of these fitness apps and it's, oh, that's super interesting. Here's a COVID-19 exposure score. And it's showing me what level of risk I had by doing whatever activities I did wherever I happened to do them. And so I think that's probably a better pathway to getting these things done rather than a bunch of municipalities or states engineering and provisioning contract tracing apps. I don't think that's ever going to work. So... Lots of different ways to think about incentivizing people. But is that perhaps asking the wrong question? There's other arguments being made that we should reconsider what these technologies are designed to accomplish in the first place. Kimon Trakopoulos is an assistant professor of data sciences and operations at the USC Marshall School of Business. He's working with the Greek government to use data to better understand and contain the spread of COVID-19. Kimon wrote an article in Wired.com titled, The logic around contact tracing apps is all wrong. His argument is basically this. Of course, understanding individual incidents of transmission is important. But in terms of decisions about reopening, the most valuable data is actually how many people we're encountering at close proximity, COVID positive or not. Leaders could understand the risk of exposure in different communities and adjust guidelines accordingly. Keeman also argues data could help reveal where exposures are happening, beaches, parks, crowded sidewalks, for example, while limiting data to neighborhoods, blocks, and zip codes for privacy reasons. Jenny Wagner and her colleagues at LFPH are emphasizing how we shouldn't be looking at the challenge of widespread app downloads and usage using typical strategies of consumer adoption. It's not just about developing a viral loop and making sure that you've got app store optimization and throwing up some Google ads and then, you know, working on, you know, and advertising on podcasts, right? That's sort of the standard um, pattern for how you do app downloads. But for this, it's really a public health intervention. Jenny said it's critical to follow models focused on public health, not just digital user experience. How does adoption work with getting people in malaria-prone countries to use bed nets? 
How did the rollout of making sure that everybody wears a seatbelt when they're in a car happen? How do bicycle helmets get advocated for? Which brings up an entirely different perspective, and we acknowledge the delicate dance we're doing around the politics of this topic. But in matters of public health intervention, the argument would be, in Paul's words, You just don't give them a choice. As Paul explained, in the U.S., there's a pretty good example of the non-elective type approach already installed in every smartphone. One we happened to experience just a month or so ago when the derecho storm brought a rare tornado warning to my suburb just outside of Chicago. The wireless emergency alert service. There's no friction. There's no opt-in. It's probably in fine print when you buy a phone somewhere. But, you know, it's just mandatory, really. And it's just default. And I think that is probably a better model if we're talking about driving adoption and usage and utilization of this for health outcomes. Certainly a big leap for anyone already concerned about privacy and access, but an interesting way to look at how certain trade-offs between public health and privacy really aren't that controversial after all. The Pew Foundation also says that 69% of Americans use Facebook. What if we Trojan horse in exposure notification? Start a coalition of the top app makers in the U.S. Twitter, Facebook, Flappy Bird. I clearly haven't downloaded an app since 2013. What if they all rolled out an exposure notification feature? We have the greatest marketing machine known to man. Put it into service for the greater good. We got GM to make masks. Let's get Silicon Valley out there to save lives. Whatever the solution is, here in the U.S. and around the world, to successfully using exposure notification technology... Clearly, we haven't arrived at it yet. Maybe we need some fresh thinking. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Cooler Terms with Pooler and Herm. In NCAR is not like other firms. They let us do this. It's Cooler Terms. Cooler Terms with Pooler and Herms is our weekly segment where we explore how new exciting words, phrases, verticals, horizontals, buckets, and laneways can introduce new paradigm shifts across the rapidly evolving holistic business landscape. With me, as always, is our very own Katie Pooler. Hey, Pooler. Hey, Herms. So I was listening to this podcast. The one we're recording now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had some actual insights that I thought I'd share. You said it's all about the notifications, not about contact tracing. Well, I don't think that's exactly what... Now, I can't stop thinking about the notifications. Like, I know GPS can have issues detecting walls, which floor of my apartment building I'm on. My phone can't detect social cues, though. Can yours? Like, maybe these apps should include an intelligent customer humiliation and good juju protection system, just in case it pops up while you're on a date, or in a work presentation, or on a plane. Just one actual insight that's worth considering. I understand you have some other cooler terms that could help. Yes, that's right. First, it's simple but elegant, robust yet buoyant, just like me. It's called incentive-driven connected user value exchanges. Which means what exactly? Think of it like a 30,000-foot view, like, quote-unquote, paying people to download an app. Yes, I just spoke about that. Some say it could work, but there's really the broader issue of... How about spontaneous, agile, Oprah-enabled audience reward discoveries? Spontaneous, agile, Oprah-enabled audience... Reward discovery? Exactly. For the layperson, Oprah reveals that an app is taped under your chair. Congrats. You now have your state's exposure notification app and a new Mazda. Everyone wins. I actually wrote a white paper on it. I don't think apps can be taped to chairs. What about an empathy-led customer cooperation inquiry? Is that a fancy way of saying, ask people nicely? It's a cooler way. 
I was also thinking about what you talked about earlier about sneaking the feature into an app someone already had, about how it could essentially show up in any end user license agreement, the EULA, if you will, and no one would ever know. Oh, you're right, Katie. It would be totally legal, and no one would know until Pinterest started telling them they've been exposed to COVID. End user license agreement. Like the Bible, an important document that is seen by many, but read by few. Think there's a cooler term for it? At least something more accurate. Maybe to say, end user agree without reading agreement, or you are raw. End user ignorance is consent agreement. You ISA. End user, I will give you anything you want. Just please let me install the software agreement. You mitza. End user unconditional surrender agreement. Yusa. Yeah. Yusa. 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 Usa. 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 Thanks, Katie. Thanks to all of you for joining. Every download of Working Better saves the life of an endangered shrew. I mean, probably. It certainly doesn't hurt them that I know of. Stay safe, everyone. Listen to your local health officials and engage in the conversation about how technology can help us overcome this pandemic together. As always, we want your feedback. Please reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, or just whisper it into your pillow before you go to sleep at night. Because we are always listening. See you next week.